Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Welcome back, cardio nerds. We have a terrific talk for you in store. Today, we will be interviewing the interim director of the Advanced Heart Failure Transplant Section at Johns Hopkins Hospital. Dr. Kavita Sharma gives us a captivating tour of heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. We cover everything from diagnosis to management, research to clinical care. This is a very high-yield subject that you are all going to enjoy. Joining us today is one of our colleagues, Dr. Beth Feldman. Beth graduated from Temple University School of Medicine and is currently on the Longcope firm on the Osler Medical Service at the Johns Hopkins University Hospital. Before pursuing a career in medicine, she worked in healthcare consulting, focusing on healthcare systems. She is passionate about health policy and health systems research, and she is hoping to pursue a career in medicine with a particular interest in critical care and cardiogenic shock. Beth, we are just so excited to have you. Absolutely. Thank you. Hi, everyone. I'm so excited to be here today. Before we dive in, just remember, this podcast is not meant to be used for medical advice. The views expressed here do not necessarily reflect the opinions or policies of our employers. The goal is simply to enjoy learning more about cardiology directly from expert cardio nerds. Today, we are sitting with one of our superb heart failure specialists and master of heart failure with preserved ejection fraction, hashtag FPEF. This is a continuation of our special series dedicated to heart failure awareness, which has been such a huge success thus far and so huge thanks to all of our listeners. Dr. Kavita Sharma graduated from the University of Virginia School of Medicine and completed her residency, where she also served as the assistant chief of service, then went on to complete cardiology fellowship an advanced heart failure fellowship at the Johns Hopkins Hospital. She is the director of the Johns Hopkins Heart Failure with Preserved Ejection Fraction Program and is currently the interim director of advanced heart failure transplant section at Hopkins. She has a specialized interest in heart failure with preserved ejection fraction or HEFPEF and directs one of the largest programs in the country dedicated to caring for patients with this condition. She's the principal investigator of numerous clinical and translational trials in HEFPEF and leads a team of nurses, research coordinators, and fellows in training in this multifaceted program. She's an invited speaker at national meetings in topic areas covering advanced heart failure and HEFPEF. Dr. Sharma, thank you so much for joining us, Cardio Nerds. Dan and Kareen, thank you so much for having me and to Amit and Beth as well. It's actually my honor to be here and I'm extremely proud of what you all have created with Cardio Nerds and this is a very exciting opportunity. We're really excited. Yeah, we're really excited. Um, so we'd love to get right into it with our discussion on HEFPEF. So as we all know, HEFPEF is increasing in prevalence with the aging of the population. It's associated with marked morbidity and mortality with rates similar to those seen in heart failure with reduced ejection fraction. As we know, these patients can be very challenging and there's certainly a spectrum of severity. Dr. Sharma, let's start with an overview of HEFPEF the way that you see it, how is HEFPEF currently defined, and how do we make the diagnosis of HEFPEF? Kareen, that's a great introduction to this growing issue and burden on the healthcare system. Um, as you mentioned, HEFPEF constitutes half of all heart failure 
And and I would say is probably one of the largest unmet needs that we have in cardiology today and we will for the dec- for decades to come. Your question about how we make the diagnosis and the definition is actually a very important one. And if only it were that simple. Herein w- it r- lies a lot of the challenges with HEFPEF, where we actually still to this day don't have a consensus definition, neither from many of the you know large academic governing uh, bodies and you know guideline writing committees, but we have a sense of what this ought to be. And so in general, HEFPEF essentially should describe a syndrome of patients who have signs and symptoms of congestive heart failure. And integral to that um, are markers of congestion. So whether that is sort of classic Framingham criteria, lurkshami edema, dyssion exertion, orthopnea, PND, many of the heart failure signs and symptoms you might think of in HEF-REF or a low ejection fraction heart failure, and we often see in HEF-PEF. Um, but in addition to that, um, there's general consensus that the ejection fraction, which is most commonly assessed by echocardiogram, is within the range of 45 to 50% or greater. There's debate about what should be considered preserved, what that cutoff ought to be. This really comes up in clinical trials um, and even in um, in making the diagnosis in the clinical practice sense, but somewhere on the order of 45 to 50% or greater without having had a prior clearly low EF. And in addition to that, this is really a diagnosis of exclusion in many ways. Um, there ought not to be other obvious causes of the underlying cardiomyopathy, such as infiltrative heart disease or severe restrictive heart disease or other causes that might be driving symptoms. If you look at the guidelines for the American Heart Association, American Cardiology, Cardiology um, the definition is still really quite broad. So signs and symptoms of heart failure, preserved ejection fraction generally by echocardiogram, but not really much guidance in the way of structural heart disease. When you look at the European Society guidelines, there are some more specific parameters to incorporate structural heart disease. Those ought to really show signs of left atrial enlargement, some degree of left ventricular hypertrophy, but not on the order of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, and then usually some evidence of diastolic dysfunction. I think it's important to note that the absence of these markers does not necessarily mean that you don't have HEFPEF. And it actually took a long time for the field to move away from what was formerly called diastolic heart failure. We learned that, in fact, diastolic function may be quite normal. And we see that in early stage HEFPEF patients where echocardiographic assessment of diastology is really not that abnormal or might be pseudonormal, grade two. And we were missing patients likely by including that in the definition. Hmm. So this is an evolving part of the field. Having a consensus definition is sorely needed and would I certainly help guide practitioners, clinical trialists, and, and many of us who are interested in therapeutic interventions here. So, you know, you have a patient in clinic who has lower extremity edema, and then you get an echo, and their echo basically shows preserved ejection fraction. Is that not enough to make the diagnosis if you think, let's say, have you ruled out, you know, cirrhosis and all nephrosis and all that stuff? So I would say that a patient coming into clinic who's got cardinal signs and symptoms of congestive heart failure, and, and it would likely be more than just the edema itself. There are many patients who have numerous comorbidities, such as renal dysfunction and morbid obesity, who come in with just peripheral edema, but have no signs of left heart disease or right heart failure. And in that case, you probably need further, more refined diagnostic testing. But if they really come in with true cardinal signs and symptoms of heart failure, of often both left and right-sided features, and have been, for example, on diuretic therapy in the past, and the echo shows preserved EF, the echo will also likely show one of these many different types of structural heart disease mm. here. And so I'm really looking to see something beyond just pedal edema and an echo with an EF of 50% or greater. There ought to be more to, to the picture. And you mentioned the European guidelines incorporate a little bit more in terms of structural abnormalities in the definition. And they also mentioned natriuretic peptides. Mm-hmm. What do you see the role of? 
Well, I think certainly naturally peptides can be very helpful in identifying whether heart failure is part of the clinical picture. Um, the challenge that we face, particularly in our North American population, is that this is a syndrome that is increasingly being seen in morbidly obese mm-hmm. patients. In our clinic, we have approximately 300 to 350 patients who are actively being followed in our half-pef clinic, and the median BMI is 42. And the mean is the same. And so you can imagine that if patients come in at that degree of obesity, we know that their anti-probian P's, which is what we routinely check at Hopkins, tend to be lower. And so does a normal anti-probian P in a morbidly obese patient who's showing in clearly volume up rule out half-pef, I would say that it does not. So the European guidelines most certainly incorporate that, and it is a useful tool for us. And we've learned a few things about anti-probian P from our clinical trial experience at Hopkins and how that interplays with our phenotype, if you will, seen here, but it wouldn't necessarily exclude if it were normal. Yeah. Kind of going off of that, because we have like a lot of patients, even like in our general medicine Mm -hmm. clinic, who have a lot of comorbidities, who have like COPD, who are obese, maybe are really deconditioned. What are kind of the tips and tricks that you use for diagnosing HEFPEF other than kind of like the standard that we would do echo, BMP, things like that? Well, I think this is what makes it really challenging. And, uh, And it definitely took me a few years of practice of seeing these patients, you know, on a weekly basis to get a feel for who has half puff versus who is somebody who is short of breath because of their many comorbidities. And it's certainly not always clear in the clinic setting. Um, patients may come in and say, you know, I have orthopnea or I have exertional dyspnea, but they've got bad COPD, as you mentioned, or they've got morbid obesity and it's hard to discern. And that's where I really think there's a role for hemodynamic testing. And I would say that especially in our increasingly comorbidly ridden population with obesity, um, this is a tool that we probably underutilize. And I'm finding that I really now refer pretty much every new referral for a uh, half path for an exercise right heart catheterization. And that's a practice change even for me in the last two years where we were typically doing resting right heart catheterization studies. Mm-hmm. But we've learned from colleagues who do hemodynamic testing, such as Barry Borlaug at the Mayo Clinic, that we probably miss a fair number of patients with half path by obtaining resting hemodynamics alone. And really the, the cardinal signs on a right heart catheterization are elevated filling pressures of the left heart, often with concomitant right-sided filling pressure elevation. And for those who have normal resting numbers at baseline, that increase in wedge pressure with exercise. Now that we generally say ought to be above 25 for pulmonary capillary wedge pressure, but even above 20 is suspicious with exercise. Hmm. Do you prefer bike or I guess that's the only option, right? Well, we do, we do supine bike right. exercise testing. You can do upright bike. Um, there are different ways to do it. It's just this is the apparatus that we have here. It sounds relatively straightforward, uh, but when your BMI is 55 or 60, not always trivial to get legs up in a bike. What I'm often um, amazed by is how early we see the elevation in left-sided filling pressures in terms of stage of exercise. So we'll have patients have their feet up in the bike and just feet in pedals is considered a, a stage of the exercise. Wow. And task. I get, I get that. And, yeah. we'll, and we'll start to see an elevation in wedge yeah. and then very quickly within stage one, 15 watts for us here, these, these sort of the protocols vary between institutions, but by the time we're at 25 watts, we'll often see wedge pressures that are getting up to 35 to 40. Right. So um, it's pretty dramatic. And you can imagine there are limited patient you know, population in terms of what they can do with exercise. So it's not that we're seeing much in the way of time on the bike and in sustainability, but we see the changes very early. Is there ever a role for repeat testing in, in terms of continued prognostication or management? Uh, I wouldn't say that anyone has 
prospectively really looked at that. It's a great question, though. I will say there are a handful of cases where I have done repeat testing when they have when patients have been perhaps referred to me, having uh-huh. had a right heart catheterization done maybe years ago with mm-hmm. resting numbers only, and their symptoms have dramatically mm-hmm. changed or advanced. And in those situations, I will consider an exercise stress test just to see whether they've now developed concomitant pH. Mm-hmm. Um, we know that patients with half PEF who have concomitant pulmonary hypertension have a worse prognosis, and those who have concomitant right-sided heart failure have worse survival. And so to really identify if there's a different phenotype that they're evolving into. So that covers really uh, the diagnosis um, that we, or so there's sort of the diagnostic approach, the best one that we have to date. In terms of management, um, as we've sort of touched upon already, you know, we know that HEFPEF is really marked by its heterogeneity. And that often is used as an explanation for why we've not been able to identify really any effective treatments to date, or at least the treatments that we have in HEFREF, why they perhaps have not translated into HEFPEF. What are your thoughts on sort of the management of HEFPEF thus far and and sort of the trials that we've done, the lack of success we've seen or, you know, sort of small successes? Sure. So I I, I guess I'll start with um, my thoughts about the clinical trials to date and why we are where we are today. So um, you're absolutely right, Corrine, that this is a disease that is really kind of identified by its heterogeneity. This is hallmark to what HEFPEF is. Tom Trail from Hopkins actually wrote one of the first descriptions of HEFPEF. This is in the New England Journal of Medicine now over 30 years ago, mm-hmm. um, describing a, a frail, elderly, old woman <laughs> yeah. yeah. hypertension. And, you know, yeah. when I was a Barker resident, I was taught mm-hmm. that this is a, this is a shout out to Barker, uh, that that this was a disease of Osler little... service. For all you Oslerian people, I Kareen repents. She I'm is sorry. so sad. She, what she used to say, Osler. She yes. has done a lot of uh, self reflection. reflection. <laughs> and, and I've learned the error of my yeah, ways. We've gotten a lot of feedback from the right. Osler alone. Yeah, so, so I will spare you further the feedback yeah. as, a, as, a, as a tried and true uh, to the core Oslerian. Um, so when I was a Barker uh, intern, I remember being taught by my ACS, Amar Krishnaswamy, who was also featured on Cardio Nerds. That's right. That that diastolic heart failure, which is what we called it at the time, was a disease of frankly, little old women with hypertension. And yet over the next three years, we would walk into rooms on rounds and see a increasingly morbidly obese population and many men. And we're very fortunate to serve such an enriched population of African-Americans. And so this was not what we were seeing in the textbooks. Uh, and then my ACS here, I recall, um, standing outside the room teaching my interns and seniors that this was a disease of little old women with hypertension. We'd walk in the room and lo and behold, that's not what we were seeing. And so I think Part of the challenge with this is that this is truly an evolving um, disease. Um, I personally think that we had an entire generation of, uh, you know, smaller sized Americans who had hypertensive heart disease and might have had coronary disease overlay. And they certainly had stiff hearts and suffered from, you know, shortness of breath and the classic flash pulmonary edema presentation that you all have seen in the ER that responds very quickly to diuretics. Those patients are often home in a day or two. And we've now evolved to this metabolic predominant phenotype of patients who come in with massive volume overload often um, and, and are in the hospital for prolonged periods of time. So from a clinical trial standpoint, this has been challenging in the sense that the first trials in HEFPEF were really looking at 
therapies that were proven in HEF-REF, enrolling all patients with HEF-PEF and probably not targeting necessarily the right populations with the right therapies necessarily. And we might have captured a mix of these two phenotypes and maybe others as well. You all know that we're increasingly recognized that um, amyloidosis is mm-hmm. part of, a, or really, you know, encompasses maybe 15, up to 15% of HEF-PEF. You can imagine that if you take amyloid patients with restrictive physiology and lower blood pressure and put them into clinical trials of heart failure with oh, ACF yes. therapies, that that might be yes. a bit challenging. So we don't know because we can't really go back and identify who had this, but this is something we're increasingly recognizing today. So yes, there's heterogeneity. Yes, it probably has played a role in the studies. Um, also note that though we say that beta blockers and ARBs and ACE inhibitors have never shown benefit, they probably have not been tested in the current modern day HEF-PEF population that we see today in the way that we would today. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we just have to take that into consideration that um, these are treatments that do work for blood pressure and many of the other comorbidities right. that these patients have. Um, but if we did a prospective study for all those therapies with the current population, we might see something different. Hard to know. You asked about treatment. Um, so treatment today is really pretty limited in what we can offer. It really comes down to, you know, decongestion, and that's mm-hmm. done with diuretics, just like with HEF-REF, though similar to HEF-REF, we have no studies to show mortality benefit with diuretic therapy, but they're necessary. I use furosemide to start in most of my patients. I will quickly switch to torsemide if I'm finding that they have increasingly, you know, right heart predominant symptoms, right heart failure predominant symptoms, and that's a main state of therapy. The TopCat trial, mm-hmm. of course, was neutral for the primary endpoint of, of uh, cardiac outcomes. Um, but when the study was then looked at it in subpoc analysis, separating out the Eastern European cohort from the North American uh, patients who were enrolled, mm-hmm. there likely was a signal for benefit, particularly for heart failure hospitalization reduction. So I use it routinely mm-hmm. in my practice, and I have pretty much everyone who I can and whose kidneys and potassium permit it mm-hmm. on spironolactone with HEFCAP. Um, in addition, there's, I think, good evidence that's under-recognized for exercise in, in diet to benefit patients with HEFPEF. Um, it's an obvious one when you're that obese. That right. Why are we not really tackling you know, weight loss in a more direct way? And for reasons that I, I personally don't fully understand either in the community, we're probably not addressing this as fully as we should, but there's evidence to support that too. Mm. So I have this patient, and I'm just going to call him Mr. Joe. Mr. Joe and I have been seeing each other for for several years now, actually. And he is a lovely gentleman, happens to be obese, and he has always been complaining of shortness of breath. And I work together with the amazing Bridge Clinic, which you are heavily involved with here at Hopkins, to work on his volume status. He always was coming in with volume overload. And we continued working back and forth and we aggressively diuresed him as outpatient, really kept him from getting admitted. And then finally, we got to a point where like, we're like, this guy is euvolemic and yet he's still complaining of shortness of breath. So, you know, we ended up sending him for uh, ischemic evaluation via cath and he ended up having severe proximal triple vessel disease and ultimately went on to bypass surgery. And when I visited him during his recovery, he uh, was just so grateful. He felt like he could breathe again. So clearly had half-half and still does and Mm -hmm. he's discharged on a diuretic, but he claimed, you know, and when I was reflecting, I had looked back at all my clinic notes and sure enough, I always, I felt very reassured that we were talking about an ischemic evaluation all the time. And I said, we're going to try medical therapy. We're going to continue, you know, working on the diuretic. He's clearly volume overloaded. You know, how do you approach these patients? And maybe the ischemia is causing part of that. Well, it's a, it's a great point. It's a great um, patient case. And I had a very similar case actually this morning in clinic that's yeah. what that I'll share with you in a second. But to your question, um, when patients come into half path clinic, 
Um, as part of their kind of baseline evaluation, we run a number of laboratory tests to begin with. We want to rule out reversible causes of any kind of cardiomyopathy. So the usual, you know, things that you would think about. So checking obviously renal function and checking their thyroid function and making sure that we are screening for amyloid with kappa lambda light chain levels, for example. But ischemic evaluation is actually part of the initial, um, you know, intake evaluation in our HEPPEF clinic. So whether that's a non-invasive stress test or if the pre-test probability is very high, we might even go to cath. Um, when I see these patients, I actually sort of preemptively give all of my patients a clinical phenotype in clinic. And if you see my notes, you'll see me sort of assign a, a label just to sort of bucket them, if you will. So, And those phenotypes that I find most common are really um, the metabolic phenotype, which is this sort of morbidly obese, often with diabetes population, a kind of a more purely hypertensive phenotype, which is really going back to that little lady with hypertension, though it can be obviously men coming in with that profile, coronary artery disease phenotype. So they might either have known CAD coming in with now predominant HEFPEF symptoms where the ischemia has been you know, dealt with or is less of the picture, and then really a pH phenotype, just because we know that from a prognosis standpoint, these patients don't do as well, and there are a number of clinical trials that are targeting HEFPEF patients with concomitant pH. So to your point, I think really getting a sense of the comorbidities and the severity is actually very important. Increasingly, the clinical trials in this space are going to target particular populations or subgroups of HEFPEF, and I think the ischemic you know, cohort is, is a very important one. Um, we know from what limited data is out there is that those patients probably don't do as well. Not surprising. They've got now two major issues, heart failure and ischemic heart disease. Um, but often we would find that, uh, and we have found that revascularization might reveal, relieve, I should say, a number of the symptoms. It just so happens that in my transplant evaluation clinic this morning, which I'm not accustomed to seeing half-deaf patients, I actually had a referral of a patient with half-deaf who has severe refractory triple vessel coronary disease. Mm. Um, in her entire you know, adult life, has really been, um, you know, characterized by ischemic heart burden, but in the last two years now, with increasingly progressive heart failure symptoms, now with edema, abdominal bloating, mm-hmm. early satiety, nausea, fatigue, all of the symptoms you think of with end-stage dilated cardiomyopathy, but her EF is 55% and her LVED EDD is about 3.5 centimeters. So again, this is someone that is a little bit unusual, but we are going to be um, evaluating for heart transplant. And just to clarify for the folks who aren't uh, familiar with dimension, that's a low left ventricular dimension. That's a small heart. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Um, Dan's uh, initial sort of vignette about the patient sort of recurrently coming into the bridge clinic congested made me think about cardiomems. What do you see as the the role for invasive monitoring in the care of these patients just to sort of help maintain uvolemia? I think the data from the CHAMPION trial, for example, is very promising. So this was a clinical perspective study of, of uh, a PA uh, pressure monitor device, specifically the CardioMEMS device, in both patients with HEF-REF and HEF-PEF. As it turns out, the device actually was beneficial in the HEF-PEF subgroup with helping to reduce hospitalizations. And I think that, you know, specific to who ought to get this, mm-hmm. so maybe not for everybody that you see who's right. well-maintained on diuretic right. therapy, but certainly if you have a patient who is what you would call a frequent flyer in and out of the heart failure diuresis clinic at your institution or in your hospital system. Um, and, it, and these patients are notoriously difficult for volume assessment, um, especially when they're obese. Where do you, where is the JVP? How do you know whether their abdominal distension is fluid or just their morbid obesity? Same for the leg edema. And so I think CardiMEMS has a, has a real significant role there. So you, you kind of mentioned the patient with uh, very bad ischemia, and you honestly listed, I think, like all the different phenotypes of HEFPEF. But is there 
a difference between how you treat each one or do you generally treat them all the same? I also saw my first case of cardiac amyloid recently. Nice. Oh, okay. On the, the Osler Medicine Service. Very good, very good. Oh, yeah. Excellent. So, Plug for our amyloid yeah. episode. Yeah. <laughs> By the way, we have an amazing episode. Yeah, amyloid series, four-part series. Amazing <laughs> stuff. We actually feature a lot of uh, Dr. Sharma's work on it. Oh, uh, yeah, with, the, Virginia, with her biopsy. Yeah. yeah. And Dr. Ramatelis at the end is yep. amazing. Nice. Check it out. Yeah. So um, that's a great question, Beth. You know, I think that to begin with, it's important to get a sense of what the phenotype is of your half-puff patient. Um, you asked whether we treat them differently right now. Um, I would say to you that the guidelines haven't really said that explicitly we ought to be treating half-puff patients differently. But um, what's clear is that treating the underlying comorbidities is really um, an important part of their overall treatment. So for example, if you have a patient who you're suspicious for ischemic um, heart disease, you want to make sure you have a diagnostic evaluation and treat that underlying you know, comorbidity that's associated and likely driving some of the half-puff if not most of it, um, because it might be associated with improved symptoms. For patients who are morbidly obese, again, we are now increasingly referring for bariatric surgery, and we're actually getting more interested in this space about what the effects of weight loss might be in this population, both from a symptomatic standpoint, but also from a cardiac mechanic standpoint. And that's part of work that we're doing through an American Heart Association Go Red for Women Network grant is to really understand um, the metabolic overlay of the multiple comorbidities and half that and how these are driving on the disease itself. But for now, you know, I think globally, the treatment is still primarily focused around decongestion, um, initiation of uh, medications such as spironolactone, if um, they're the right patient profile, looking to reduce weight, exercise therapy. And one of our main goals in the next you know, year from a number of the organizations such as AHA and ACC is to get uh, cardiac rehabilitation mm-hmm. um, approved by CMS for HEFPEF, which is a challenge right now. So it's approved for HEFREF, but mm-hmm. not always easy to get your HEFPEF patients in. And then your invasive monitoring devices such as CardioMEP. So really focusing on reducing the burden of disease right now. My personal kind of passion in all this is not just the patient care bedside part of it, but really what is driving this from a mechanistic standpoint. Mm -hmm. So um, we're very proud of the fact that, you know, we have probably one of the largest human tissue biobanks in half in the world right now. When I started this program, we developed an IRB protocol to obtain endomyocardial biopsy tissue. And so we have a number of patients who've had um, endomyocardial sampling. Um, And we're actively working with our basic science colleagues, both at Hopkins and around the country, to look at the underlying pathways that might be involved, um, both in the myocardial dysfunction in these patients, but also more systemic pathways that might be driving half pet. And so my hope is that down the road, phenotyping will go beyond just what we see at the bedside and maybe what you see on echo, but will really be true deep phenotyping where we now have mechanistic pathways that we can target. I think that's where this is probably going to be heading. And this is kind of like the money question for me, because I feel like as a resident, when I get an admission and it's someone who's like decompensated heart failure, that's not HEF-REF. I'm a little bit nervous because we have kind of an algorithm of how we treat HEF-REF. Like someone comes in overloaded, we kind of know exactly what to do. Mm-hmm. But I think when someone comes in with HEF-PEF, there's a little bit, we don't, you know, immediately know how to treat these people other than diurese them mm-hmm. just because, you know, there's no guidelines. Yeah. So I'm wondering, is there anything specific or any kind of algorithm that you would use for these patients inpatient? Well, that's a great question. And actually your perception of how we approach these patients is spot on and exactly what I used to feel as a trainee as well. It's part of the reason why we did a clinical trial in this space. So uh, we published the Ropadope trial um, in 2018 in Jack Heart Failure, and this was a prospective study of looking at uh, inpatient 
treatment strategies for acute decompensated HFPEF. So this was a study where we enrolled 90 patients actually on the ulcer services um, with a total it. of... <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. Wait, actually, but yeah. this was like the nicest thing. Ugh, I should have cut you off. But this is like the nicest thing. Dr. Uh, Sharma actually listed the ulcer medical residents mm-hmm. as authors. As co-authors. Oh, we need special so permission nice. for that. Yeah. But Jack permitted us to list the entire ulcer house because all of so these patients... Of were on the O, and then there were um, 12 residents who were um, very, very integrally involved in the study. But we were basically looking to see whether there were particular treatment strategies that might help mitigate that very common um, sort of bumping creatinine and acute kidney injury profile that we see with HFPEF patients when we start to treat them um, with acute heart failure. Unlike HFREF, you initiate your diuresis, your afterload reduction, and you see that creatinine nicely come down as the kidneys are decongesting and as you're getting fluid off, proving kind of the hemodynamic profile of the patient. We don't always see that in HFPEF. And what's far more common is that in the first 24, 48 hours, we start to diurese the patient, the creatinine starts to bump, and then everybody holds off in the therapies. Yeah. Diuretics are stopped. Um, fluids are sometimes given back. Yep. Blood pressure medications are now, antihypertensives are held, and everyone just takes a big breath and pauses. And then 50% of those patients I find are either just out the door because yeah. no one knows what to do. <laughs> We're here and they're still massively volume up. Or this, or this what I call yo-yo effect just yeah. continues indefinitely. Yep. Yeah. Um, and it's brutal. So we, at that time, when I was a resident and fellow, um, we often were using renal dose dopamine to help facilitate diuresis with the idea that that might protect the kidneys with no data to support it. It had never been shown to help in half ref, and we didn't have anything to guide that in half PEF. So we looked at um, low-dose dopamine versus no dopamine in combination with BID Lysix versus a continuous infusion. Also, strategies that were often mm-hmm. being sort of thrown around in treating half PEF and found that dopamine, not surprisingly, made no difference on renal outcomes in this population, but unexpectedly, continuous infusion Lysix seemed to perpetuate more kidney injury than, than uh, BID Lysix. Um, so for whatever reason, these patients are more susceptible to a significant drop in GFR um, in the inpatient setting. The take-home messages from the study were that diuretics, again, integral to the treatment of acute decompensated HFPEF, we don't really have a role for dopamine here. We, I don't think of afterload reduction and some of the other traditional HFREF therapies to be necessarily applicable. I do think that when patients come in, they often get their blood pressure lowered very, very quickly with HFPEF, and they don't quite have the ability to tolerate that lowering of blood pressure in the same way that we like to see in our HFREF patients. The physiology just isn't the same, and that can often really put the team behind and the patient behind when the kidneys start to go off with relative hypotension. So kind of maintaining um, a steady state blood pressure, you know, 130, 140 systolic, if they're used to much higher at home, you're probably going to be okay, decongest them, and then really start to optimize the antihypertensive. So just going slower is the name of the game in these folks, I think. That's super helpful. And folks, we'll put the uh, the study in our reference page on our Heart Failure Awareness Cardio Nerds page. Definitely check it out. It's a great paper. <laughs> okay. We plug everything. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> we plug you. Yeah. We plug us. We plug it all. <laughs> Anyways, okay. So end-stage heart failure can express itself as cardiogenic shock, usually in heart failure with reduced ejection fraction. All forms of cardiogenic shock can be challenging to manage, and we continue to learn more about treatment and management all the time. Low perfusion states are particularly challenging to manage. I was wondering if you had a different approach for low perfusion states with patients who have heart failure with preserved ejection fraction and cardiogenic shock. 
how should we approach such a patient? And also, how do we think about them with vasoactive medications and mechanical circulatory support? Gosh, that is a really great question. And isn't it so counterintuitive that you might have a patient with HEF-PEF who presents with a cardiogenic shock profile, but we see it and it's real. And it is, I've seen it myself in the CCU and many of our colleagues who attend in the CCU here have called me with such patients. Um, I think it goes to show how limited our understanding is, first of all, of what HEF-PEF is. So we're calling this preserved ejection fraction with mm-hmm. the assumption that contractility is normal, but often it is not. And even without presenting with a cardiogenic shock, fulminant kind of clinical profile, um, I'll tell you that um, up to a third, if not more, of my clinic cohort on hemodynamics has a low cardiac output and cardiac index. So you're now addressing the fact that their body surface area is much higher than maybe the average half ref patient. So there's clearly not something completely normal in these patients when it comes to cardiac output and, and contractility, if you will. We don't really understand it. To your question about how to approach the patient coming in with fulminant cardiogenic shock with HEF-PEF, I think you would think about the management of shock very similar to how you would with a patient with HEF-REF. If they are truly hypotensive and you don't have room for an inotrope in this situation, you might consider just adding a presser to start. So that might be norepinephrine right off the bat, just by the guidelines. It might be dopamine. Um, We don't have data to drive this and to really guide us here, but I would think of it very similarly. You'd be probably inclined to put a Swan-Gans catheter in because you might be thinking, gosh, the EF is is quite normal looking. Is this a mixed picture shock? So you'd want to take that off the table, but they can come in with a pretty pure cardiogenic shock looking profile. And then if you've got some blood pressure room to work with, not unheard of to try an inotrope in this situation here, really to help offer some improved cardiac output. I think where things become a little unclear is what the utility is of temporary mechanical support. Um, Have we reached for a balloon pump or an impella type device to support these patients through a a transient shock episode? Yes, but really there's no data here to guide this. And the physiology is a little bit, you know, hard to sort of understand why these would even work because you're not necessarily looking at a dilated cardiomyopathy. Mm. But at the end of the day, if they're coming in with a low output and index, I would treat them very similar to as you would your half rough patients here. Now, taking it to the next step is what is the what's the next therapy for these patients? This is where it gets even more challenging. In terms of advanced therapies, there are really two primary durable advanced therapies, and those are heart transplantation or durable uh, mechanical uh, assist devices or the LVATs. Majority of HEF-PEF patients, even if their hemodynamics suggests that their cardiac output and index might be low in such a situation, the dimensions and the structure from the left ventricular standpoint are usually not very amenable to LVAD therapy. Generally speaking, LVADs um, we know are designed to help unload the left ventricle in patients with um, typically dilated cardiomyopathy, that is end stage. And you do have to have some anatomic real estate to work with mm-hmm. to put in an inflow cannula and unload the left ventricle. And if you have a small, stiff ventricle, whether it's restrictive myopathy or whether it is HEF-PEF or primary right-sided heart failure, these devices are probably less helpful. Okay. So that's not usually a therapy that we reach to when we think about end-stage management. Um, I think we probably underutilize heart transplantation in this population, and it might not be because we're not thinking about it. It's often because the comorbidities um, mm-hmm. prohibit this therapy. Um, so unless it's sort of one of those unique phenotypes, as we discussed earlier, that's a primary coronary artery disease phenotype or a, a primary restrictive myopathy phenotype now um, that's now half path that's progressed along the way, um, we usually end up limited because of the comorbidities. 
right? And I find that a lot of these patients, the mechanism of their shock tends to be from pulmonary hypertension that's mm-hmm. secondary to the HEFPEF over time. So yeah. again, you're dealing with a, a, you know, just a low perfusion state because the right side is just not able to get to the left side anymore. It's not a contractility mm-hmm. issue. Very mm-hmm. hard to reverse. Yeah. Have you ever used an atrial septostomy to bail out a patient with severe symptoms of HEFPEF? Uh, and if so, like, how would you select these types of patients? That's a great question. So this is a strategy that is actively being studied in a, in a few clinical trials right now. And we have the um, sort of early data from the reduce LAP trial. So there are a few different devices out there that are being looked at to essentially create an atrial shunt. I mean, the idea behind this is that HEFPEF, so intrinsic to HEFPEF is elevation of left-sided filling pressure, specifically left atrial pressure, and that if we were to shunt that pressure over to the right, might that help patients and their symptoms and their outcomes down the road? I wouldn't say that I've used an atrial septostomy um, as a bailout outside of a clinical trial, so to speak, because we do have the availability of clinical trial enrollment for these. Um, So if you're not a center that's doing these studies, the idea would be to find a center around the region that might be willing to, to enroll patients in this strategy, but I do think there is a role for this in those who are particularly burdened by left-sided symptoms so that very, very prominent shortness of breath, significant orthopnea, PND, but maybe not a whole lot of the right-sided massive fluid overload, abdominal distension, and, and leg edema picture. And I do have a few patients at that profile um, who I have referred for this procedure as part of a clinical trial. I think things that we have to watch for with this strategy is what are the sequelae of creating a yeah. left-to-right shunt? Because we know that patients who develop right-sided heart failure in the setting of half path have worse prognosis. And I think what we have yet to learn and what the data will continue to show us is um, what are the implications of creating this shunt and are there sequelae down the road that are going to become problematic because of right-sided you know, failure. Do those patients generally go for a transplant or they can just kind of stay with the shunt? I, this is relatively early. So we, we, we haven't seen past, you know, around the you know first year of outcomes in these patients so far, but that's a, it's a valid point and, and it's probably something we need to follow and watch more carefully over time. This was actually the question I was most excited about. Oh, great. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry to disappoint. Sorry. You have these patients who, like, you get an echo. And, and obviously, I know we've talked about, even, like, on rounds, how EFs are estimations, and we take them with a grain of salt. But if you have an EF of, like, this 40 to 49%, it's kind of this gray area. This person hasn't had, like, half rep with a recovered ejection fraction or anything like that. How do we treat these patients? Do we assume that it's half and try to treat them that way? Do we assume it's like early HEF-REF? What would you recommend? So we don't know is the bottom line. This is a area of heart failure that is of growing interest all around and that we need to learn more about um, and that we are probably learning uh, more from actually the clinical trials mm-hmm. um, than, than anything else in terms of how these patients behave, what they respond to, and does that provide us with clues as to how to think about them physiologically and how we ought to treat them. I will tell you that you know in my practice, if I have somebody who's coming in who's really truly now around 40%, Um, maybe even lower, and there's been a trajectory, I'm starting to think of them as someone who's basically headed towards half rough if they aren't already there. And I'm starting to think about getting them on traditional kind of guideline-directed medical therapy for half rough. Other clues that um, I think support that are, for example, um, the Paragon study that was recently published looking at Entrusto in 
HEF-PEF. This is ambulatory, outpatient, stable, HEF-PEF. Again, narrowly missed its primary endpoint of combined cardiovascular death and heart failure hospitalization. In the analysis looking at the pre-specified subgroups, the group that had sort of this mid-range ejection fraction profile seemed to have a differential response to Entresto um, yeah. than those who were in that kind of clear half EF range. So again, suggesting that these patients might actually be either headed towards half ref or at the least are behaving like earlier stage kind of half ref. And that's my suspicion. But we really, truly don't fully understand this group. So sorry to disappoint. No, that's okay. This is the question I'm most excited about. Yeah, it's, yeah. Good to, it's good to talk TBD. about. That's why the Cardi Nerds podcast will be around for a very long that's time. That's right. We're just constantly going to yeah, be learning new unknowns. stuff. Uh, so transitioning a little bit more into the research realm of things within heart failure, with preserved ejection fraction. We've talked about sort of the challenges in the field and we've touched on the challenges in clinical trials. I think probably one of the first and foremost issues with clinical trials to date in HEFPEF is that, as you mentioned, we don't have a clear universal definition. So if you don't know how to define it, you don't know how you're enrolling and who you're enrolling. And I'm sure that that's contributed to some of the failures, no pun intended, we've had to date. But Can you talk a little bit about sort of what other major challenges you think the field has faced with regards to HEFPEF trials? What are the, what is the ideal for future trial development? And then we can also touch on your involvement in the Paraglide trial and how you were able to overcome HEFPEF definitions in that particular study. Sure. So, you know, I think you put it very well that, you know, a a major ongoing and not new challenge is how do you define the syndrome? But I do think that though HEFPEF is now recognized, I would say, for just numerous negative trials, and that's really the intro to every HEFPEF paper out there. (laughs) This is (laughs) constituted massive burden of of disease in cardiology today with no treatments. Um, But we learn from the studies that are neutral or or negative, so to speak. And we have to learn. We have to stop and understand what happened in the trial and who the patients were. And I think my my feeling is that, you know, if you look at the inclusion criteria um, with each you know, subsequent trial over the last even five years, um, you'll find that the criteria are more and more refined, I think, closer to what we see in real practice. So, for example, um, no longer are patients within uh, a BMI over 30 excluded as they, you know, might have um, been, you know, a decade ago. Um, no longer are patients who have antiprobianps that are lower than what we typically think of excluded because we now learn that you can have heart failure with a relatively low antiprobianp and we ought not to exclude these patients. Mm. And so, you know, I take it as a frankly, a a personal mission and even a responsibility that um, in studies that I am involved in to make sure that those of us who who bear the responsibility of designing clinical trials are inclusive of our patients who actually suffer from Mm -hmm. this, who might benefit from the therapy, but by the traditional inclusion criteria would have been left out of the trials. And it's a challenge because on the one hand, you want to capture the population that has the syndrome. On the other hand, you don't want to have a trial cohort that has a number of patients 
patients that may not even have the underlying disease to begin with. And this has always been a concern with HFPEF. We don't want to have patients who are enrolled who are simply obese without actual heart failure or have end-stage renal disease but don't actually have a cardiomyopathy. So there have to, this has to be within some you know, reasonable means, but I, I do think we are getting better at defining these criteria. Yeah, and so you have a wonderful re- uh, editorial with one of our co-fellows, mm-hmm. Wendy Yang, yep. uh, on the Paragon trial. Mm-hmm. And as you reiterate the importance of deep phenotyping, which we've talked about uh, a lot today. And, and as you said, this space is really rapidly evolving. And hopefully, as we continue to better phenotype these patients mm-hmm. on a cellular level, you know, all the way to clinically, we'll be able to better target them. But it also remarked on the use of more echocardiographic parameters mm-hmm. in defining HFPEF patients and the use of that for inclusion in trials. Yeah, I think that, you know, the the Paragon study was a was a feat. I mean, really, and it was a um, a, a great accomplishment just to even complete the entire trial. And then the ECHO sub-study was very impressive as well in terms of how many patients had echocardiogram studies completed. And Amil Shah wrote the, the ECHO sub-study paper um, for which we were, you know, honored to write the editorial for. Again, this goes back to really learning more and more from who these patients are. And I think that as we think about this idea of you know, really targeting therapy to the right phenotype and or, or what Sanjeev Shah, one of my good friends and colleagues and mentors at Northwestern, after whom I really based this half-path clinic at Hopkins, would say phenomapping. So really trying to match patients to the right therapy. Um, and a lot of what we learned from the trials, such as the ECHO subsidy for Paragon, is how we can utilize imaging, biomarkers, clinical comorbidities, um, to really try to address what the underlying kind of pathophysiology is. Now, again, I will say that I think that we will probably need to go even deeper than that, mm-hmm. um, in that it may not come down just to, do you have impaired left atrial contractility? Do you only have a hypertrophy sort of phenotype of the left ventricle? Do you have a predominant right-sided heart failure phenotype? I think it might likely come down to even more than that and what's happening at the molecular level, but this is what we are aiming to learn here. Can you give us any teasers about what you've learned so far? I'm so excited about this. Sure. So so, um, we started sort of with the basics, which is what does the histo Mm -hmm. uh, path show in the tissue from half-path patients? So remember, you know, to date, there's exceedingly limited data from human subjects when it comes to myocardial tissue sampling. Mike Seil at MUSC has done great work in this space looking at patients with HFPEF who are referred for coronary artery bypass graft surgery, for example. Um, But that you can imagine sort of fits that ischemic HFPEF phenotype. From his work, we've learned about the importance of fibrosis and what this ischemic phenotype might look like. From Salman Mohammed, for example, who published an autopsy study of HFPEF, we have learned about microvascular disease in this Mm -hmm. population. And we also learned about the prevalence of amyloid at autopsy in HFPEF. And that was from uh, the Mayo Clinic. And so we have these groups that have started to explore this, but still to date, no um, perspective study looking at human tissue in what I would call as contemporary half path, um, which is really this 
profile of patients with predominant metabolic phenotype, if you will. And so just looking at the histopath, what we find is that um, fibrosis and hypertrophy are certainly, myocyte hypertrophy are certainly very common in varying degrees of severity. And it's really, you know, all over the map. There are certain patients who have severe phenotype of both of these abnormalities, and there are others where it's very, very mild. And it's not entirely clear, you know, who develops a severe profile and who does it. And we're now looking at um, what are the comorbidities that are now predictive of some of these um, phenotypes. We also have found that amyloidosis is prevalent in 14% of our HFPEF cohort, and that's mm-hmm. just referred in the door for HFPEF. Ron Metellus was featured on CardioNerds recently on the topic of amyloidosis, and he's published great work on what are some of the clinical predictors of amyloidosis. But even using those very helpful tools in HFPEF, I will say, we still probably miss this in underdiagnosed cardiac amyloidosis, and that's something else we're learning from our biopsy cohort. So I want to touch on the ongoing paraglide trial and your role in that. But before we jump into that, we would be remiss to have a talk on HFPEF without touching on women. Wait, you're not doing this one yet, right? No, I'm not. Oh, yeah. Sorry. My bad. I was too excited about my question at the end. I'm not stealing your question. (laughs) Don't steal my question. (laughs) I'm adding my own question. (laughs) The old married couple. Anyway, so as we know, HFPEF is a <laughs> disease seen in predominantly women. And we know that we are lagging behind in the management and treatment of women, enrollment of women in clinical trials. So I would love to sort of get your input on women and HFPEF specifically from a clinical standpoint and mm-hmm. from a research standpoint. Well, that's a great question. And it's very close to my heart because this was actually at the core of our American Heart Go Red Network Award that Hopkins received for our work to understand sex differences in underlying mechanisms in HFPEF. And it's something that we have known for many years is part of HFPEF that this is tends to be a female predominant syndrome. Though I will tell you that if you look at our clinical practice at Hopkins it is now um, becoming closer and closer to 50-50. And I think this is also just represented of this evolving kind of phenotype and what this disease is looking like today as opposed to 20 to 30 years ago. The little old lady hypertensive phenotype for sure was, you know, pretty clearly a, a female predominant phenotype, if you will. But we're starting to see more men increasingly being recognized. Now, that being said, even with the evolving demographics, the clinical trials still predominantly enroll men. And this is a challenge across cardiology. And I think it's extremely important that when trials are designed, that we really pre-specify what portion of women we want to have captured because we really won't understand how they respond to therapies without having them in the trials. Part of our goals here on an investigative level is to understand, you know, what happens postmenopause mm-hmm. with um, relative estrogen depletion. How does that affect myocardial stiffness? Is that implicated in, um, in a pathway that we're very interested in, which is the cyclic GMP PKG pathway? Does that actually pretend greater fibrosis and stiffness of the myocardium in women as opposed to men? And then how might women in men differentially respond to, say, PDE inhibitors, so the phosphodiesterase inhibitors, whether it's five, whether it's some of the more novel ones that we're looking at, and how does that has that implicated by the hormonal state of women postmenopause? So this is work that we're very interested in. I think that we've far from have an understanding of yeah. really what is driving this, but um, it's something that needs, we need to understand better. So tell us a little bit about the Paraglide trial, which is ongoing in HFPEF and sort of what your role is. Paraglide uh, is an exciting study that is going to be looking at the effect of 
inpatient mm-hmm. uh, initiation of Secubitril Valsartan in patients with HFPEF hospitalized with acute decompensated heart failure. Um, when the study was originally designed and when we first started enrollment, the idea was to enroll patients who are within 36 hours of presentation to the hospital out to 10 days post-discharge. The study actually has just recently undergone an amendment where now we can enroll patients up to 30 days out for discharge, mm-hmm. um, which is really going to kind of open that window of enrollment. And that's based on what we learned from the Paragon study um, in a recent subhoc analysis that was published looking at timing of heart failure hospitalization in response to Secubitril Valsartan and HFPEF. And it turns out that patients who were most recently hospitalized, so within that 30-day period, had, a, had the greatest kind of absolute risk reduction for the primary endpoint with therapy compared to those who were much further out and clinically probably more stable. So we're really trying to capture that acute patient who's not only in the hospital, but within 30 days of discharge, initiation of uh, early initiation of Secubitril Valsartan in this cohort. And primary endpoint here is the natriuretic. Natriuretic peptide reduction at four weeks and at eight weeks, but you can imagine that we are going to be looking at a number of secondary endpoints, yeah. and those will include the traditional kind of heart failure hospitalization and um, morbidity and mortality, but also a numerous markers of, of well-being and overall kind of... Very interesting. Yeah, because yeah. yeah. we know in the past from acute heart failure tr- trials mm-hmm. that these short-term endpoints mm-hmm. of biomarkers yeah. and symptom resolution does, do outcomes. not always predict yeah. outcomes. So yeah. it'll be really interesting to see. Yeah, and it's very exciting. I'm, I'm um, honored to serve as U.S. national lead for this trial. Um, I think it speaks volumes to what we've tried to grow here, the Hopkins program for HFPATH and you know, for many of you listening who are trainees who are interested in clinical trials, it is possible to be a clinical trialist and not come from a place that maybe has the traditional mechanisms and set up in place to do really large clinical trials. My personal passion still to this day are, is sort of smaller mechanistic focused studies. That's my passion. That's really what I hope to grow and develop here from what we learn from the molecular work we're doing at the tissue level. I'm really kind of first in human novel therapeutics, um, but it's really a, an amazing opportunity to be part of the larger kind of national landscape of clinical trials and have our site be featured um, in this study. Yeah, it's exciting. Yeah. Yeah. It's time for my question. Oh, so we're all okay. so excited. Oh I can't wait. Oh, oh my God. I usually do a mushy thing at the beginning of each episode. Usually, <laughs> right? You were, yeah. you were wondering why. I, I was, was wondering waiting. why you weren't gushing. Anyways, <laughs> Dr. Sharma and I have been working together since 2015. Yes. It's crazy, right? And when I was a, a junior resident hanging out on the cardiomyopathy service, and as I'm getting to know, this amazing force on the service who just knows every single thing about every single patient at every single time, you're thinking, or I'm thinking to myself, this is such an amazing clinician. She is 100% spending all of her time basically with these patients. And then I find out, no, she's also a tremendous clinical trialist and she's so actively involved in research going on in the institution and networking with like a million people. And it feels like she's a hundred percent devoted to the research side of things. And then I tried to Facebook friend you, but you denied me. Oh my God. <laughs> I'm, kidding, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Definitely. Uh, I was accepted right away. But then I find out she's a hundred percent devoted to this wonderful family that she's raising oh my God. with her husband. Wonderful. And how are you? Yeah. So I'm pretty bad at math. I have GED actually. <laughs> uh, that doesn't make you bad at math for all the people who have GEDs that are good at math. But anyways, 100% times three is like 300%, yeah, which is really impossible. Is so how do you do it? Oh my goodness. Um, you know, I have learned over time that I kind of thrive with having a lot going on. That's mm-hmm. just sort of me. 
and maybe pathologic, but that's just where I kind of, that's just my zen. So I think that it takes time to learn how to manage your time. And I didn't know how to do this when I came out of training and I started on faculty and every day just felt like a sip from a fire hose, just trying to not only put out fires, but how to figure out where to carve out time for research and mentoring and then the clinical operations. And this past year has been a whole new level of challenges wearing an administrative hat um, at this institution. But what I've been grateful for and what I think for trainees as you're looking to that next stage and when you're looking for you know the right fit for jobs and your careers is to find places that are going to be supportive of your passions. And that's the one thing mm. that I have to say was so incredibly um, helpful as I started out and was navigating all these different multiple you know balls in the air that I'm juggling is that there was a commitment to protect time to allow me to pursue academic um, interests here. And the nice thing I have found is that my clinical interests overlay a lot with my research interests. And so I don't have that challenge of being uh, at a basic science lab and having to run to the bench, but then also have to see patients. And I frankly don't know how those individuals often navigate it. It's far more challenging than anything I have to do. Um, but it's it's the structure of this has worked out. This came with the advice, advice of a lot of mentors who sort of suggested, hey, to really make it work, think about questions that you can ask that are right in front of you. And Ropadope came about from what I saw in the wards. Mm-hmm. And the idea to do exercise right heart cats and then maybe add on endomyocardial biopsy and looking tissues because we're already doing those procedures. So a lot of what I have asked here um, in terms of research questions is what I'm literally looking at in the clinic or in the cath lab because that's the bandwidth that I have and those are the things that I'm struggling with myself as a mm-hmm. clinician. So if that's worth anything, I'm fortunate to have an incredibly supportive partner in my husband, Previn, who's a urologist. Uh, busy himself, but happy to be out of the academic fray and let me do the thinking. And he's sort of a, a guy who would rather be skiing and playing his guitar any day of the week. So mm. I think that's obviously a huge part and it takes a village. And I have a, a great support system with family and childcare and the whole bit. So not without help. Right. That's for sure. It takes a village. It takes but... a village. Dr. Sharma, we'd like to end this interview with asking you what makes your heart flutter about heart failure? Oh, gosh. There is so much that I would say makes my heart flutter, but I'll tell you a few key scenarios. Um, one is seeing a patient with HEFPEF, because that's the theme of this podcast, um, who actually feels remarkably better with the little that we can offer. And I think that goes to show that though we often underestimate the power of therapies that we have, being in the hands of thoughtful cardiologists like yourself, um, who are paying attention to comorbidities, paying attention to fluid status, getting the right diagnostic test- testing done and getting them into clinical trials is sometimes all it takes to make a world of difference in a patient whose disease otherwise has no proven therapies mm-hmm. for survival mm-hmm. benefit. That makes my heart flutter. Apart from that, I am an advanced heart failure transplant cardiologist by training and at heart. And so full-on cardiogenic shock always makes my heart flutter. <laughs> Man, do I love walking through the CCU and hearing about Someone who's just kind of going down and getting involved and getting that consult, and that makes my heart flutter. Apart from that, my two boys, mm-hmm. Keisha and Raghav, who are ages six and four, and make life very interesting. And they walk in the room, or I walk in the room, and, and that's it. Oh, okay. no, that's great. I'm tearing up here. I'm definitely, this is this past the goosebumps scale, and I'm wearing like a bunch of layers for the audience. Thank you, Dr. Sharma. This Looks was so just an absolute wonderful time. And thanks, Beth. This was a real treat. I know you're super busy. She was just running an RRT, nice. like a great Osloresa yeah. before she yeah. came in here. Right. Classic. Thank you guys for including me. Oh, no, it was a real treat. I'm Honestly. a huge fan. Thank you all. This is my pleasure and honor to, to be with you guys. 
Well, that brings us to the end of our show. So it's time to make like an S2 and split. You can follow us on Twitter at CardioNerds. And please share what made your heart flutter this week. Send us a clip to CardioNerds at gmail.com. If you enjoyed the show, be a nerd and spread the word. Beep.